2: Welcome to the program. It's a brand new week. This is the Monday edition of The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And as you know by now, this is a program dedicated to taking your phone calls, answering your Bible questions, questions about anything going on in your life, or anything that is on your heart. All you have to do is provide the phone call. 210-340-9585 is our primary number. Uh, if you are outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at eight seven seven six three zero K S L R. Numerically, that's six three zero five seven five seven. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And remember, if you are driving in your car, the safest way to call it is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen and you will be connected directly to our studio producer. Hope you had a great day in church yesterday. We did. We had so many people. We didn't know what to do with them, but uh, it was really, really a good day, and I pray that that was the case uh, where you went to church as well, and I pray especially that people got saved where you went to church. With everyone that gives their heart to Jesus Christ, we're that much closer to Jesus coming back for his church. Hey, we would ask for prayer this week, of course. This is our Women's Retreat Week. They uh, begin on Thursday uh, evening, and uh, if you think about it, if God puts us on your heart or mind, uh, we would love to have you pray for um, the ladies. We, we really expect that the Lord is going to speak to their heart. I know the women are excited. There's a whole bunch of Ladies going, so please keep them in your prayers. Now, tonight here at Calvary Chapel, we've got our men's and women's and youth Bible studies all at 7 o'clock. So you can make it a family affair and get here. And uh, ladies, you can watch uh, uh, live stream at CalvarySA.com if you can't make it here. Well, let's get to some questions. I've got somebody who is critical of me. So I'll start with that one first. Uh, It is anonymous. Uh, Here's the question. Why couldn't Pastor Ron pray corporately for the Ukrainian people before starting to preach? I fully understand, and not to get political, but this is different. This is a major situation. I'm just trying to understand. We took an entire Saturday for blm protests. Uh, I'm a little perplexed by this. Um, uh, the, the, the things that you talk about, the, the Saturday, uh, and this goes back quite a long time now, uh, when our city was um, basically, uh, f- the streets were full of protesters. Um, um, so, I mean, this was well over a year and a half ago. Um, uh, and it was a Saturday. It was a pastor's discipleship class, and we were meeting the need of the people. So I, I don't understand. Also, there's a lot of capitals in your in your uh, question to me, and I don't really know what you're trying to say. Uh, you know, sometimes we don't get a break, but, but let me explain a couple of things. First, on Sundays, our job is preaching the Word of God, period. That's our job. And uh, the Bibles are open, people's hearts are ready to hear, and that's what we do. And obviously, you came this Sunday, and um, I. Uh, we don't have time to do anything else. Uh, it's the Word, and that's our emphasis. That's why we gather together, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Um, so um, I, I don't take Sundays to pray for issues. I certainly don't. Take Sundays to pray for things that don't affect all of us. Um, um, Sundays, I'm praying that the Lord would open our hearts. Um, You know, what bothers me most about this, Anonymous, is that uh, obviously right at the beginning, you were upset. And that probably means um, you didn't hear a word that the Lord wanted to say to you during that time. Imagine sitting through an entire service, God's word is being taught. And all you can think about is, why didn't Pastor Ron pray? Those are really important things. Secondly, uh, we do have corporate prayer on Saturdays. Do you come to corporate prayer? Because if you come to corporate prayer, now we didn't this Saturday, because we had the science fair here at the church, and that takes up the whole facility. But we have a corporate prayer meeting every Saturday morning. And... We have been praying prior to the invasion starting. We have been praying for the people in Ukraine. And we've been praying that, that the Lord would keep Russia from doing uh, what they're doing now. Uh, but but not just me, but lots of people who come to the corporate prayer. Um, honestly, we would love to have you be there. And you can pray for whatever God puts on your heart. And we do that every Saturday. That's corporate prayer day. And I think it's a little bit disingenuous for you to be critical, especially if you're not coming to corporate prayer. And if you had been coming to corporate prayer, you would have known that a lot of people are really invested in this, and a lot of people are praying for that. Thirdly, we have several people who are directly affected by the situation in Ukraine, and we have been constantly in prayer for them and for their families who are stuck there. Uh, we have been reaching out to some of the Calvary Chapel uh, churches and pastors who are in Ukraine. Uh, so our hearts and our prayers are constantly over this situation. But we don't do that on Sunday. So I'm a little bit perplexed by by your angst here, and, and it uh, upsets me. If you would want to talk to me about this person-to-person, face-to-face— I would be more than happy to do that with you. But I think this is um, just maybe a little bit disingenuous for you to approach it uh, this way. I'm not defending myself. We we do not pray on Sundays. We have three services Sunday mornings, and our time frame is really, really tight. So I agree with you. The Ukraine situation is major. People's lives are are being affected, and we are constantly in prayer. As I am sure, after reading this email, I'm sure your prayers are with the situation as well. The only other thing I want to say, and since I don't know who you are, um, I, I think there's, there's just maybe a hint, maybe a hint of uh, racism in this for you to end this. We took an entire Saturday for the BLM protest. You don't think that was important? That was a Saturday pastor's discipleship class. Our church was absolutely packed because people wanted to come and hear what the response of a real Christian ought to be like. So that's all I can say. Believe me, my heart is in prayer for And my heart is for the people in Ukraine. Uh, I think this situation is um, dire. And it's something that we need to be as Christians constantly in prayer about. But I'll repeat one last time and then move on. This is not what we do on Sundays. So please come to the Saturday morning prayer. It's 9.30 to 10.30 every Saturday. We've got a really good crowd of people. They pray from wonderful hearts. God is answering our prayers. And uh, we would invite you to pray corporately with the people who are there. But that's the day that we pray corporately. Uh, unfortunately, the bulk of the church doesn't come on Saturday. Again, we have a good crowd. But, um, you know, prayers get heard um, when there's a sacrifice involved coming on a Saturday morning, a little tiny sacrifice, just a sacrifice of time. But I can promise you the people who are um, regular attenders of that corporate prayer time would tell you it's the best possible way to spend their time. So Anonymous, that's the best I can do with that. I'm sorry that I disappointed you. for your live calls and questions. Here is a question uh, from Martin or Martine. Uh, We are told not to malign others. So why do some pastors call other pastors false teachers? I think I know this is a Martine. Martine, um, if we call other pastors false teachers, it's because they're false teachers. That's not maligning somebody, that's simply identifying uh, the deficiency. Uh, You're right, we're told not to malign other people, but uh, we're also told to call out false teachers by name for the protection of others. So how do you balance that? And the only answer is, we know there's no contradiction, so the answer is it's not maligning somebody if you're simply saying this person is a false teacher. And the body of Christ needs to be protected. Now, what they choose to do with that information is up to them, but the body of Christ needs to be protected from those who are um, falsely teaching the Word of God. The Apostle Paul could not be more clear. Uh, uh, Peter is brutal when it comes to talking about false teachers and the punishment that awaits them. So um, the reason some pastors, and I have done that in the past, not often, but I've done that in the past, uh, we do it uh, because it's a matter of protection. One other thing I want to share with you, Martine, and and this this also could go to the person who uh, just wrote anonymously that I just dealt with. Um, You know, when we're in prayer, Um, And and certainly when I'm teaching the Bible, um, we try to be led by the Holy Spirit to talk about the things he wants to talk about. And I don't talk about false teachers other than when it comes up in the, the, the text that we're teaching. So it's really, really important to understand. So you're right. We're not to malign others. But we are called to mark people, and and sometimes by name, if they're false teachers, and that's for the protection of the body. So, Martine, thank you for the question. Here is an anonymous one that's, oh, this is going to make people mad, Uh, some people mad. Anonymous says, will animals be in heaven? Revelation 19 says, horses will be. What about my cats? Anonymous, I'm sorry, but animals won't be in heaven. Heaven is for the redeemed. Heaven is for those of us who are created in the image of God. And as wonderful as your cats are, I had this question a couple of weeks ago, and I always remind people that I'm a dog person. I love dogs. Paul and I had the greatest dog ever for 15 years, and um, and you know, we I always say, if any animals in heaven, he's going to be in heaven. His name was Moto. Um, but um, the the uh, the the uh, animals have no soul. They are a gift from God for our enjoyment, a blessing from God to those of us who love animals, a reward, and that ought to be enough for us. Uh, They live, they're a blessing, and then they die, uh, but that's it. They don't have a soul, a spirit that is going to live forever like we do. Now... Revelation 19, when you say horses will be, when you see Jesus, remember a lot of the language in Revelation is symbolic. And when we come on white horses, you'll remember that Jesus came into Jerusalem the first time on a donkey. Now donkeys were, this is a very, very Jewish context, both in the the, the triumphal entry and in Revelation 19 because both passages deal primarily with Israel and with Jews. Uh, Jesus was rejected in part because he came on a donkey, and donkeys in the ancient world were the uh, the people who, uh, the, the animal that kings rode during times of peace. And Jesus said, I didn't come to judge the world, but that through me the world would be saved. He didn't come as the judgment king the first time. So he was on a donkey. The people didn't want that. They wanted a, the, the the king on a war horse. Get rid of Rome. Deliver us from Rome. Uh, in contrast, in Revelation 19, he comes on a horse, but that's figurative. Um, it's not like we're all going to really be riding horses. We're going to come with him. He's coming to make war, and we're coming just to be there with him. So uh, Revelation 19 does not say Literal horses are going to be in heaven. So um, um, your cats, uh, as wonderful a gift as they are to, to you from the Lord, they will not be in heaven. But that shouldn't be something that causes us difficulty. Jesus will be there. Uh, we'll have everything that we need. And uh, believe me, you won't miss, we won't miss anything when it comes to being to heaven. Let's go to Alan, holding on line one. Alan, thank you for being patient from San Antonio. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. How are you doing? Alan, I'm doing well.
0: You and, yeah, I just wanted to check in with you and say hello and uh, just say God bless you. Uh, thank you, Alan. Sorry the, the dogs and cats don't get into heaven, and that was a pretty, <laughs> was a pretty good joke. I was telling people that uh, Christ didn't die for dogs and cats, so... Uh, That's um, pretty useful information for me.
2: (laughs) Thank you, Helen. God bless you. It was good to see you. I didn't get to talk to you much, but I saw you from a little bit of a distance. So it was really good to see you. Thank you very, very much. Here is a question, uh, this time from Debbie. She said, I've heard you pray to fall more in love with Jesus. How do you do that when you're not as emotional as when you first got saved? Um, You know, Debbie, one of the things Jesus says to the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2 is that they need to work hard uh, at not leaving or forsaking their first love. So like in any relationship, to fall more in love with someone, even if that someone is Jesus, requires work. It requires investment. So you've got to be... Um, um, hard at work at developing the relationship. And Debbie, just for me personally, and I, I prayed that so often. Lord, I help me to fall more in love with you today than I was yesterday. And I pray that when, when I'm praying at church. I want people to understand that this is a love relationship that we have with the Lord. Uh, but, but it requires a commitment to working at the relationship. You know, when I saw Paula for the first time, um, and Debbie, this is hard to explain, but I mean, I saw her for the very first time and my stomach actually fluttered. She was so beautiful. And and just I just saw her, she was on the other side of a gym and I saw her across the gym and all I could think about was that is the most beautiful girl I've ever seen in my life, I've got to get to know her. And my stomach fluttered. But you know... A week later, when I actually met her, my stomach fluttered all over again. But we didn't really have much of a relationship. I wasn't super cool, you know, I didn't know all the cool things to say. So we kind of struggled with conversation. We had to get to know each other. And the more I got to know her, the more in love with her I fell. And now, 52 years later, I love her more than I ever could possibly imagine on that first day. And there's a lot of times when that love is not emotional. It's a settled issue. Now, the same thing is true with Jesus, Debbie. The more I learn about Jesus, the better he gets. He has never disappointed me once, he's never caused me any pain. He certainly never lied to me. And, and the more I'm around Jesus, the more I love him. And that is a settled decision rather than an emotional feeling. And I think, Debbie, that's what you do. Just spend more time with him. Talk to him. Not just when you're in your prayer or when the Bible's open or even when you go to church. Just throughout the day, talk to him. Just talk to him. Share your heart with him like you would a a real human being, a a physical human being uh, who was around that was your best friend. Jesus is our best friend. And I think all we have to do is to remember that. And then falling more in love with him is just something that grows as, in fact, you see his hand move in your life. So, Debbie, all of us, we ought to love our God, our Jesus, more today than the day we met him. If we don't, it's because we're not spending time with him or we're not learning about him. By the way, we also ought to fall in love, more in love with our spouses every day. Rather than taking them for granted or rather than being easily irritated by them, we really need to remember why we fell in love with them in the first place and work on that relationship as well. I think that's the beauty of a relationship Um, rather than um, um, religion, Debbie. So I I hope that answers your question. 3409585, here is a question from Ryan. Uh, Pastor Ron, do you think that PSA, which is uh, Penal Substitutionary Atonement, is what he's talking about, is an essential or non-essential component of our faith? Um, Ryan, this is really a difficult one for me Uh, personally, and I'll just lay it out there. Personally, I think it is an essential Uh, penal substitutionary atonement states that Jesus took the punishment our sins deserve. He took that punishment in our place. And more than that, he suffered unto death in our place. He died instead of us so that we could have life. And uh, I, I don't understand why this is even a consideration. And yet um, in many um, primarily Orthodox faith, um, uh, you know, they don't like to think about God, the wrath of God. Well, God's not mad at me. Well, God's angry at the world and God's angry that he has to judge the world and we would be judged apart from Jesus' sacrifice. So certainly he took our place. That's what penal substitutionary atonement is all about. Now, those who say it's a non-essential component of our faith, they say, well, well, you don't have to believe in that. I honestly, I honestly, Ryan, don't see how they rationalize that uh, in view of uh, the book of Romans. I mean, Romans goes to great length to talk about penal substitutionary atonement, Um um, what is the point in Jesus going to the cross and dying? Uh, most of the people who don 't want to consider this as an essential they say, Well, he died for our sins, but why? if it wasn 't necessary, why would he do it? There is a guy a bible teacher and, and he 's not a good teacher he he 's a, a wonderful communicator and he's he 's really fooled a lot of people um n t Wright uh, he 's an episcopal priest um I remind you that Episcopal priests, by nature of their connection to the Episcopal Church, have basically thrown the Bible out. And yet there's this one guy who is a, a, a prolific author uh, and a wonderful communicator who has decided, he calls it a, a new perspective on Paul. Um, he's just decided that Paul really didn't know what he was talking about. And and because they don't want to consider a God who is angry at sin. They can't reconcile a God who is love and a God who is also angry at sin. And so what they've done is basically taken away a lot of um, our New Testament outside of the gospel accounts. So Ryan, again, personally, I believe Penal substitutionary atonement is an essential doctrine. Um, And and I can say that, and out of the other side of my mouth, I'll say this. Um, I know some people uh, who are orthodox in their religious affiliation who have rejected this because it doesn't make them feel good um, and and, uh, have converted to the orthodox faith, and um, I believe they're saved. So that's the difficulty of walking this line. It's pretty precarious walk. Um, but yes, I think it is a, a, an absolute essential. I also think that we are rather ungrateful to God if we just sort of toss penal substitutionary atonement out um, uh, just because of the way it makes us feel. One of the comment, Ryan, and then we're getting ready to go to, the, go to a break here. Um, there's an awful lot of people who are throwing out things that don't make them feel well these days. I've watched uh, one particular blog writer go from an Orthodox Christian. I don't mean Orthodox in religion, but, but Orthodox, fundamentally correct um, Christian uh, over the years just reading and engaging with other people. And he shipwrecked his whole faith as a result of operating according to feelings. If you really want to feel better, be grateful from the depths of your heart that Jesus died in your place and took the punishment that your sins deserve. So if you want to be a fruitful Christian, I think it's an essential. Thank you. Well, we have 30 minutes left on this Monday show, Um, 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR. This is the word to stand up for life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh. We will be back in two minutes.
0: To the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 87-630-KSLR. Now here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh.
2: Welcome back to the second half of our Monday show, 340-9585. Let's open with a phone call. We've got Cindy online one. Cindy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi,
1: Pastor Ron. Hi, Cindy. I'm kind of curious about some things from Sunday's study. We were in Mark Five, uh, Gospel of Mark, Chapter Five, and I was curious about uh, a couple things. the um, The guy, the guy who you know got saved and the demons were taken out of. I was wondering if he was a if he was a Jew or if he was a Gentile. Because if he was a Jew, I thought that'd be pretty incredible for the Lord to tell him to go home, you know, and, and tell his family, you know, which would have been wonderful, but if he was a Gentile then I thought it was pretty cool that he sent him sent him to that region of was it Decropolis? Yeah, oh, Decropolis the, the, and, and Yeah the and Decapolis. Was, yeah, Decapolis and you said those were mainly Gentiles. And I thought well that was pretty neat because uh Jesus is getting the ball rolling, you know, getting Gentiles the word, because it mainly, you had said that Jesus' audience was pretty much just Jewish. So then all these Gentiles are um, hearing about him. And then the other thing I was real curious about were the pigs. Now, the people that owned the pigs, if they were Jewish, why did they own a bunch of pigs when Jews weren't supposed to have them? <laughs> and if they were Gentiles, who could they sell a pig to if they were in Israel? So that's kind of what I was wondering. And then one more thing, I think Sam's got some pretty big competition with that joke you told yesterday.
2: I Your told sui- a joke. Suicide. Oh, yes, you did. You told a
1: suicide <laughs> joke. I'm gonna put my radio back on and listen. Thank you. Bye.
2: Thank you, Cindy. Yeah, I'm I'm the most surprised person in the world if anything funny comes out of my mouth. But in this particular case, I apologize. All three services, I apologized in advance before actually saying it. The pigs committed suicide. So um, it was a pretty heavy study, and sometimes you need a, a, just a little lighten-up moment in the Bible study, get everybody's attention back on track. Uh, my producer is saying that Paula slapped him. when He just smacked him when when uh, when she heard it. Um, a couple of things, Cindy. Uh, the Decapolis, the ten cities, was a, a a heavily Gentile population. So that explains the pigs. Um, y- yes, it was in Israel, but, but on the, the ten cities across the, the Sea of Galilee, uh, was heavily, there were some Jews who lived there, but it was heavily Gentile. And uh, in this particular case, it was one of... Um, the staples of the economy. So uh, that's why you find the pigs. Uh, that's that's because there were Gentiles there. Um, that also would seem to indicate, and we're not told this in uh, three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, all include this story. And there's no identification for Legion uh, as a Jew or a Gentile, but because he was a mainstay on the the uh, gentile side of the lake um I, I think it's pretty safe to assume that the man that we call legion was uh was a gentile and uh, uh, that's not why jesus didn't let him go when he begged jesus to, to to let me let me stay with you let me follow you uh but but it was that he could do more good uh in his hometown So, Cindy, those are the things. It's just, um, it's such a great story. Uh, Not only because we get information about demon possession that we really don't get in any of the other stories. We get some detail here. Um, um, But but, but as I said in the message yesterday, a lot of that detail comes without explanations or reasons. For example, we don't know why uh, demons, spirits, uh don't want to be disembodied evidently it's very uncomfortable for them or they can't do evil stuff i don't know uh, all we know is that they they need to be in a host and in this case it was evidently better for the demons to be in pigs than than it was um for for them to be cast out into the uh, into the air so we we don't have any explanations but yeah i uh, i really enjoy that study with, uh, with um, Legion a lot. I kept referring him to as a man formerly known as Legion because Legion wasn't his name. Uh, that was how the demons identified themselves. Good question, Cindy. And by the way, next Sunday, on uh, this coming Sunday, we have um, uh, two more wonderful miracles in uh, Mark chapter 5. We'll be talking about Jairus's daughter, and the woman with the issue of blood. So um, uh, this just, the end of chapter 4 through all the way to chapter 5, for a Bible teacher, those are just really, really fun things to do. So great, great question, Cindy. Thank you very, very much. Let's go to Cibolo and talk with Matthew on line one. Matthew, thanks for calling. You're on the air.
3: Hi,
2: Pastor Ron. Hope
1: you're having a good day.
2: I am Matthew. Thank you. You too?
1: Yes, sir. Yep, yep. I had a quick question. I was taking some notes yesterday from the Bible study yesterday, amazing Bible study. Um, Thank you. And you had mentioned mentioned about uh, tools of the devil, and you you had mentioned specifically that you didn't want to, obviously you didn't have enough time to get into that. But can you discern the the tools from the devil, the tools from the flesh, and the tools from the world? I know those are the three uh, battles we go through in life. So I was maybe Mm -hmm. can kind of give a few minutes on that, on the, how can we discern if it's the flesh, if it's the world, or if it's the devil?
2: Yeah, that's a wonderful question, Matthew, and the first thing is we need to ask God constantly for discernment. You know, um, if you go to the book of James in the first chapter, um, we're told in the context there is trials. Uh, we, we, we forget this, but the context is trials, and it says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously or, or liberally. Um, um, and when we're in a trial, when we're going through something that we can't discern, whether it's, whether it's my flesh or the enemy or the world, um, we, can, we can go to the Lord and say, I need wisdom. What's the source of this? And I believe he will generously give you the wisdom that you need. Now, let me give you a kind of a safeguard, Matthew, because this is what I do. My first assumption is always that it's me. I'm the problem. My flesh is the problem. And and I always uh, assume it's me. And so what I want to do is I want to check my heart with the Lord. And when I check my heart with the Lord, Lord, I'm going through this right now. Um, Is it something that I've brought on myself? Uh, Is this just a consequence of my flesh? Uh, And the Lord is very, very faithful to let me know. He'll correct me if I need correcting. But at the same time, if i'm okay with him he'll let me know because he wants me to know who or what i'm fighting and sometimes um when it's not me uh, maybe it's a little too much excuse me maybe it's a little too much exposure to things in this world and i i might have found myself you know spending a little bit of time uh, responding um, to to worldly things instead of instead of really focusing on being with Jesus, um, and sometimes the 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 Lord lets me know that this is a direct attack from the enemy, and I want to be able to discern that, and and God wants us to be able to discern that, so we know how to fight. That's why both Peter and Paul go to such detail to tell us how to fight it when it's the enemy. We have three enemies, Matthew. Uh, Our flesh, the world that we live in that panders to our flesh, and the enemy of our souls who inflames our flesh. So it's just one of those things. Lord, if it's not my flesh, then I'm going to stand with you against the world. And in so doing, I'm going to put up a barrier The the full armor of God, um, being aware of the devil's schemes, according to Peter, I'm going to put up a barrier between me and the enemy so that all he can do is, and this is the way I like to say it, huff and puff and threaten to blow my house down. But I really realize that as long as I'm with Jesus, Matthew, then um, um, the devil can do nothing. He can try to scare me. He can, uh, you know, plant thoughts. He can give me nightmares. But in the middle of those attacks, all you got to do is remember that greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. So, Jesus, I'm going to hang out with you. So, Matthew, that's uh, uh, that's the battle that we're all in, and that kind of discernment is critical for all of us to have. Good question. I appreciate it very, very much. Here is a question from our mobile app, Anonymous. Um. While talking to some co-workers, this question popped up, which made me take pause. Is there such a thing as Christian self-worth? In other words, should someone expect acclamation of any sort for serving in the body in the church? Thank you so much. Anonymous, uh, let, me, let me suggest a Bible study today. Go to Re- uh, Luke, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 17. Um, the very first study in Luke is really the heart and the attitude with which all of us as Christians ought to serve the Lord. Um, Serving God is just something we do out of gratitude. It's not something we do to get other Christians to pat us on the back and say, thank you so much, I'm so grateful. Now here's sort of the balance between the two. If you serve and the only purpose of your serving, the only motive you have is to bring God honor and glory. If you'll do that, then I promise you, God will bring people around you who will recognize what you're doing and they will pat you on the back. And you'll, you'll realize, Jesus, I didn't do this. This is you. And, and Jesus will just sort of go, sh- 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 I know, but he's letting your light shine. So and It means so much more. When you don't want anybody to notice what you're doing, and they do, you know it's just like a little kiss from Jesus. So I think when we start taking credit for what we do, then we fall into the trap of expecting people to appreciate it or expecting people to say something to us, and that's the moment we cease being a servant at all. Whenever we're doing it for us, We cease being a servant of our Jesus. So great, great question. And I think it's always things like this. And when people do pat you on the back or when they do make notice of the things that you're doing, I think that's when we have the opportunity to really check our heart and find out for whom we are serving. Great, great question. Thank you very, very much. Let's go to line one and talk with Irene from San Antonio. Irene, thanks for calling. You're on the air.
3: Uh, Pastor Ron, uh, good afternoon. Uh, Hi, Irene. How are you? Fine, fine, sir. I'm calling. um, I I read that uh, Genesis 9.20, where uh, the son of Noah had gone in and saw his father's nakedness. Uh-huh. and uh and when he woke up and everything from what I read, uh he cursed him that that's how come the canaanites are cursed, but I want to know uh when I asked my friend in California before calling you she she told me a whole story, and I said, "Well, where do you get that from uh, And she said that because he had seen his nakedness and that they were laughing that uh he was caught in the act. It doesn't say anything like that when I read it. <laughs> yeah, of it doesn't course. say that. So, uh, I, I yeah. want to know, what, what is really the curse? What, what really happened?
2: Okay, two things. One, Noah didn't have any power or authority to curse anybody. And you notice also, Irene, that he didn't curse Ham. He cursed Ham's descendants, what happens here is that becomes a prophecy. And God is simply saying, this is what your descendants are going to be like. Now, I'll give you an example. Um, um, Nimrod, uh, who you can read about in chapter 10 and chapter 11 of Genesis. Nimrod was a descendant from the line of, of Ham. And that was a wicked line. And so Noah, while, while just in his anger and his frustration, he wasn't cursing them. I mean, he might have been cursing them as a person, but, but he wasn't acting on God's behalf. But God was speaking through him in a prophetic sense, and he was just simply predicting what Ham's descendants were going to be like. And so, uh, you know, this has raised all kinds of questions throughout the years. And again, this plays into some of the racist tendencies that people have. Because for for a long, long time, people have been saying, well, black people are the descendants of Ham and they're cursed and that's why they're black. And, and not only is that racist, but it's absolutely hateful and blasphemous against God. So all he was doing, Irene, was... God speaking through him, saying that his descendants, Ham's descendants, were going to be people that rebelled against God, and that started with Nimrod. One other thing about this, and I think uh, that that story is misunderstood a lot. Um, We don't know, other than him getting drunk um, and having a bad moment, Noah, um, um, we don't know any more about the sin than that. And when... Um, his son Ham came in, rather than covering his nakedness, he was trying to expose it. When he went and got the other brothers, they walked in backwards. They didn't even want to see their father's nakedness. They were trying to protect their father's integrity. It was sort of, okay, well, nobody's perfect. He blew it, but but we don't need to lay eyes on it, and, and we still are going to respect our father, which, as you know, is a big deal for the Lord. So, Um, um, Ham, we know from the beginning, had ulterior motives. And we can only guess at what those motives might have been. Perhaps he was just at that point where he'd heard his father preaching for 120 years, and then the judgment comes. He sees all the dead bodies and all the people on the earth are dead. He's got to start all over again and is resentful. Who knows what was behind it? Um, but it certainly was not godly, and the distinction in Genesis chapter nine there is being made between the hearts of his brothers and his heart. Uh, the hearts of his brothers honored their father and were godly. The hearts of or the heart rather of of ham um, was dishonouring to his father. but uh, anybody who reads more than that into it uh, is just making stuff up, and usually those things irene are a result of, of bad teaching. Great question, thank you very, very much. Here's a question from Scott from our email inbox. When Jesus quieted the wind and waves in Mark four thirty nine, and he says Quiet be still, beyond commending the spiritual and physical attack, do you think he specifically aimed those words for the benefit of the disciples so they would hear it and adhere to it too? Uh, they were a bit panicked at the time, uh Scott, that they were a bit panicked at the time is an understatement, and this story, and you know I did this study two Sundays ago now um uh th- this story uh this, this storm was so intense that it scared experienced fishermen to death now the the fishermen among Jesus grew notably Peter James, and john uh they were they were professionals. They, they knew every inch of the Sea of Galilee. And they'd been in frightening positions before. But this storm was so different. And they were terrified. And, of course, they went right to Jesus and said, um, Lord, don't you care if we drown? And this was a failure of their faith, Scott. God had already told them, let's go to the other side. I started the study yesterday. With chapter 5, the first verse, uh, when they arrived, and I said, see, let's state the obvious. They made it to the other side. God always gets us where we need to be. Um, and then and then Jesus, he he simply rebuked them. Um, he he rebuked them um, for their lack of faith. Basically saying, after everything you've seen, everything you've heard, you still don't have faith. What he's saying, look, I told you we get to the other side. That means we're going to make it, and still you don't trust me. And then in a demonstration of his power, it says he rebuked the wind and the waves. He rebuked the storm. Now, I believe that that was a satanically inspired storm. I believe it because the the devil didn't want Jesus on the other side of the lake, uh, the Decapolis, the ten cities uh, that we, that opened in chapter five, uh, was a place where Satan had a stronghold, demon possession. Um, but but it was it was a, an evil place, and he didn't want Jesus bringing some light to that evil place. So when he said quiet, uh, it's very it's it's a personal statement. He said quiet, and he was talking directly to the devil. The word means. Be still, I don't want to hear any more from you. And then instantly, of course, because even the devil obeys Jesus specifically, instantly the wind and the waves died down. And it was one of those moments, Scott, where I think the disciples went, Ooh, who is this? Even the wind and the waves listened to him. So, good question. Thank you very, very much. And yeah, they were more than a bit panicked and they didn't have to because all they had to do was have faith. We are now inside of five minutes. Here's a question from Paul. I think i got time for two more. Paul says, I learned through reading that Martin Luther was an anti-Semite. Was he saved? Paul, he was an anti-Semite. Um... um you know, we're all sort of a product of our environment and, and um, Jews were hated people and Martin Luther hated Jews. Some of the things he's written, you would read them and swear that that could not come out of the mouth of a Christian, somebody with the heart of God. Having said that, um, yeah, I believe he was saved, of course. Um, justification by faith—we, we sort of owed that um, protest to Martin Luther, and so it's it's just sort of a, a, a difficult thing to balance. You know, when somebody um, has such insight, God gave him such insight, and God used him wonderfully, and yet out of the same mouth that blessed God, he could curse God's people, and that's just a hard thing to explain. Um Paul, unfortunately, I know some people who are racist um who I also believe are Christians. I think they're going to have a lot to answer for um I think their rewards are going to be lost um but I'm pretty sure they were saved, and that's not to excuse racism um but Martin Luther was guilty of it as well is hatred toward Jews, Um, with all the insight he had, he didn't understand it wasn't Jews who killed Jesus. It was you, Paul, and it was me. So hard, hard to reconcile, but that's just one of those things that we won't really understand until we get to heaven. Here's the last question for the day. John says, Pastor Ron, can you help me understand what the different levels of heaven mean? Like when Paul said he went to the third heaven. Also, do people now still go to heaven like Paul did? Um, the third heaven, there's, there's not different levels of heaven. Paul was talking about the heavens, plural. Second Corinthians chapter 12. And that's, John, where he describes his own experience where he was transported to heaven. Um, had a, a physical malady. We don't know what it was for sure. Uh, people guess, but but that's all it is—is is a guess. And it was physical agony. It was torture. And he begged God, and God said, um, um, "No, this is a, a, a messenger from Satan. Was allowed to buffet Paul, uh, and and it was it was a tool that the Lord used to keep Paul from becoming prideful because of the surpassingly great revelations he received." And in describing that revelation, Paul says, I went to the third heaven, and by that all he meant was he went to the abode of God. The the first heaven uh, in the description here is simply the atmosphere. You know, you and I look up in the sky and we see birds and we see planes and we see those things. And, and Paul is describing, no, I went through the atmosphere that you can see. The second heaven would be what we call outer space, and so he's saying, uh, I went through outer space, and then I ended up in the, uh, the, the dwelling place of God or the abode of God. So that's all it means. It doesn't mean that there's different levels of heaven for different levels of Christians, not at all. Um, relative to where people still go to heaven like Paul did, I don't know. Um, uh, I, I know that when people come uh, and talk about it, they didn't really go to heaven, and, and if somebody really did go to heaven and God takes them to heaven uh, on a visit, um, they too, like Paul, wouldn't be permitted by God to talk about it. So do people still go to heaven like Paul did? It's possible. It's biblical. But they wouldn't be able to talk about it. Hey, thank you for tuning in today. This has been The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. May the Lord bless you and keep you. I'll see you tomorrow on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then.
0: Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com.